How was it, it crossing was, that 100 million mark? Okay, so that's also a great story because I had put the goal up as 100 million. That was what we were going to reach. Hit 98 million. Next year, I hit 97. I'm going backwards. Um, the third year, I said, well, this isn't working. And I changed the goal to 250 million. And we blew past 100 million. Blew past it. And it's, it's another lesson that said, hey, when you start getting close to your goal, you better change your goal. Yeah. Right? Change Absolutely. your number. Don't wait till you reach it to try to change it. Yeah. Awesome. So we have uh, another episode of Adversity Kings, and we have a very, very special guest. And uh, right there, probably paralleled with, with Simon, because I wouldn't have this opportunity without, without you, Roger Smith. And I don't believe Simon, you know, obviously would have had this opportunity without you pioneering and paving, paving the way in American income life. So we have special guest Roger Smith. Thank you for joining us today. How are you Thank doing? Thank you, Chester. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yes, sir. Really, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Yes, so how, how are you doing today? Today, I'm okay. I mean, I got up at 6 o'clock and yeah. <laughs> got out of Florida and yes. went to Charlotte and Charlotte to here. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm good. I'm awesome. Good. good to be in Chicago. It's been, I don't know, it's got to be 20 years. Yeah. Could be more since I've been back. So. Yeah. But it's, it feels like hometown to me. Feels good. Feels yeah, good to be it back. does. Feel. Two of my kids were born here. Let's go. So, How many yeah. kids do you have? I have five. Okay. Love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. So before we go too deep, I want to shout out the most unlikely leader. So this is Roger's book. When did this officially drop? So it officially dropped May the 31st. May the 31st. That's when you could get it on Amazon. That's the, the official published date. Where can everybody get this? So they can get it on Amazon. Um, just look up the most unlikely leader. They could go to my website, rogersmith.me. Yep. And there's a place to order. All my uh, social media links are there. And yeah. Awesome. Even a short bio. Let's go. <laughs> so I'm, I'm reading here real quick. Santa Monica. Is, that's California? That's California. What, what were your parents like before we even go into your teenage years? My, uh, my mom basically brought us up. My, my biological dad uh, went to jail when I was three years old. And so never really had a relationship with him. Mm. Um, my mom then remarried uh, to a very creative man. That's where I get the name Smith. And um, he ended up going bankrupt. Uh, he owned a company and founded a company. It was called Feathercombs. And it was what, like, women would put their hair up in buns and they'd put it yeah, like with bobby pins with pearls on top and yeah. stuff. And anyway, he invented that. He hired a man uh, named Alger Hiss. And Alger Hiss was later uh, labeled as a spy, you know, with the United Nations during the McCarthy era. And uh, my stepfather was blacklisted and went bankrupt. And back then, on the East Coast, if you went bankrupt... You went as far west as you could go. And so we went from Manhattan okay. and went all the way to Malibu. 
And back then, Malibu was just apartment beach shacks. You know, you had a small enclave of, of expensive homes, mm-hmm. but the rest was just all apartment beach shacks, you know, surfing town. That was it. Yeah. That was it. So, um, unfortunately, my second father, um, you know, never was able to pick himself up. And I actually think, you know, when I look back at my life, I think that a lot of those self-destructive qualities that I picked up early on as a teenager, you know, came from that. Yeah. He eventually uh, died, you know, of alcohol and drugs and was pretty self-destructive at the uh, towards the end. And so, you know, I guess it was in those years, I, I that's what I saw and strangely enough, that's what I imitated, mm-hmm. you know. What nationality were your parents? Uh, Russian, Belgium. So did you did you guys have any of that heritage and that culture in your household growing up? Did that not not really? No, not really. It was you know, um, it was very it was very mixed. Yep. Yeah. And so, what era did you grow up in? Was it the sixties and seventies? So I was. <laughs> are you asking how old I? <laughs> so uh, I was born in nineteen fifty-two. I'm turning seventy in a month. Um, so, yeah, I mean, by the time that I got to L.A., that was that was sixties. Okay. You know, that was the hippie era was just starting. And, man, I was looking for my tribe, and I found it yes. <laughs> very quick. So when did you end up on the streets? So that was when I was, you know, I tell the story. Up until the age of 14, I was a pretty good kid. I mean, I was, not that I was a student, but uh, like my sister and brother, but I was C's and B's, but I was like the star of the junior high musical. I was, you know, in the chess club, in the woodworking club, that type. And then um, that summer, it was like a flip, uh, a switch flipped. What do you think caused that switch to flip? You know what? I, I don't know. I, I have thought about that, and I don't. No, I don't know why all that rebellion came up right at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said before, I was kind of I was looking for my tribe. The hippie movement was just starting, and you know I was able. You know what I thought was that I found my people, but really all that I really found was you know drugs and more drugs and more drugs. So yeah. you know it was it was it's interesting. Just in how fast you can move from this kid to all of a sudden being a high school dropout, a drug addict, um, homeless, you know, it, it, it really is amazing how quick it can move. But it moved really quick for me. It wasn't something that, you know, went on, started in a year. It, it moved. And within a year from that summer when I was 14 to the time that I was 15, all of that happened. And what about your, your mother, your siblings, and your stepfather? What were, as, as you're going through that experience as a teenager, what were their thoughts? So at that point, it's now my mom my stepfather gotten divorced. So now it's just my mom, my brother, and my sister. And 
um, you know, my mom, she really, uh, she couldn't do anything. She, she could, I mean, she, I was out of control. Mm. So I just, there's, there's nothing that she could do. Her, what she did try to do, this is an interesting story. She had my biological father actually come out and talk to me. And at that point, I was getting in trouble a lot. I was getting arrested a lot. And he came out to talk to me. And he said, you know, Roger, listen, your, your sister and brother, you know, they're, you know, some kids are made for college and some aren't. And your sister and brother, you know, they're, they're made for college. You, on the other hand, you know, you, you should probably just, like being a trade or something. And it's so interesting when you think that I had no relationship with this guy, right? Yeah. No relationship. And yet I allowed those words to sink in. I allowed those words to think, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not even valuable enough to go to college. I can't, you know, I'm not smart enough. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's so important, and at that age, I don't think I could have, you know, I wasn't strong enough mentally to be able to say, uh-uh, I'm not letting this shit in. Yeah. But, but you know, as you get older, the, the people that are around you or the people that love you, the words that are said, it's, it's so important that you protect yourself from the negatives, mm-hmm. you know, and don't allow those things to seep in because they will. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's often the people around you that bring you down and, you know, the ones that are closest to you. Absolutely. Unfortunately. So as you go through the high school experience of being homeless and such and, and going through everything you're going through, what about that college age range from 18 to 23, 24? What, what was your so, life looking like then? So at that point, um, I'm just trying to survive and I'm working a series of just different jobs. Right. I'm just, you know, I'm a, a bus boy, a, you know, a waiter. I'm a file clerk. Um, I worked I worked for an insurance company in the basement of a high rise. <laughs> and it was just me at the bottom yeah. pulling files and sending them out and everything and just, yeah, you know, just just surviving. In the meantime, my mom had remarried. Mm-hmm. And and now this is my third father, Mike Ferrone. And he had started with American he was the charter member of the President's Club in nineteen seventy four. So what's a charter member? So the beginning, the first member of the president like they announced the President's Club. Yeah. And he was the first person to to become a member of the President's Club of American Income. That's so, awesome. I made yeah, pre- yeah. I made President's Club my, yeah. my first year. Did you? Yeah. That's Beautiful. awesome. Beautiful. They, they yeah. won a lot of production. Well, how much was the production to make it? Then? Oh, crap. I don't know. It's, you know, we're going back years, yeah. 40 plus years. I have no idea. Um, but anyway, he had started, I want to say like nine months a year before I did. And, and uh, he, he approached me and said, Roger, you know, why don't you try this? And tell you the truth, I, I didn't want to disappoint him. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want uh, him to stick his neck out and then me not do any good. Yeah. Um, but I gave it a shot and uh, it was a good shot. So it worked. How, how old were you when you got into American? So I think I was 20, 
23. Yeah, 23. So what, what did that experience look like for your first couple of years? What was your first 30 days like? Oh, it was horrible. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, it was horrible. I was, yeah, I tell the story, Tristan. I, I was the worst salesperson in the world. <laughs> I was so scared of the clothes. You know how, like, they say, um, you know, you'd give it a subject clothes, and then the first person who's, who, who talks loses. loses. Yeah. yeah. I never liked that. And I, I especially never liked it for American income because nobody loses in this. You yeah. Know, people, are, they're able to have an insurance policy that takes care of their family. The salesperson, you know, is able to make a living. So I never thought anybody loses. But, but having said that, um, it sure is the first person who talks is going to be the person buying. Yeah. So <laughs> one way or another. I would close the sale and the back of my neck would start to shake so hard that I literally thought that people, the, that the clients thought I was having an epileptic seizure. <laughs> I did. I, w- I, was, I was scared to death of it. And it really just, it goes to show that, that you can find success if you're willing to learn the behavior to be successful. You know, it's not like I was a natural-born salesperson or a natural-born leader or a natural-born born CEO. It was all learned behavior. And, and as a salesperson, you know, I believed I worked harder than anybody else. When, when other people were doing four or five or six presentations a day, I was doing eight and ten presentations a day. You know, I, I would practice my presentation every morning. And people question that. They go, well, why would I have to practice if I'm going to be doing presentations? And the answer is so you could get better. And so what happens when you do that or when I did that is as I practiced more, gave more presentations, I started to get better results. Mm. And when I got better results, then I started to gain confidence. Mm -hmm. And as I gained confidence, I even got better results. And and it just snowballs on itself until in the end I was agent of the year. Wow. Yeah. But it's so interesting because like I said, never in my in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I could be this successful salesperson. Wow. Who was your SGA? So um, it was a couple of guys uh, partnered in uh, California, uh, Rancier Landau were the, were the SGAs. Now, were they kind of founders? They with, weren't. With they, American Income Life or no? Uh, um, so they were close to that, close to that. They were not in the original group, okay. but right in the next group that came in after that. And then were you the CEO after Bernard? Yep. So, so then I'm assuming that Bernard, did he hand select the SGAs initially and, and then kind of divvied up territory? Is that how that yeah. like went? So yeah. his first year of founding American Income Life, did he just find he fa- like- he found, uh, He found people, um, connected with them, uh, had some friendships with them, and, and had them come with American Income. 
Um, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of this story, but there was, there was a time early on where American income was about to go under. Mm-hmm. You know, the banks were asking for the loans. Uh, Mr. Rappaport understood that he was losing money on his disability policies and A&H policies. And he had and he had to go to the SGAs and say, hey, listen, we're going to become a life company. We'll have some A&H products, but we're going to become a life company. And he made the contracts rich enough, the renewals, right, mm-hmm. that that – uh, the SGAs were willing to transition over into selling life insurance. Wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal because otherwise if they hadn't, they might not have been an American income at that point. So yeah, it's I've not been. like everything goes well and everything the company kept on building. That's not the way it is. It's not the way it is with anything. Yeah. And, and it wasn't that, that way with him either. Wow. Now, getting back into your career with American Income Life, mm-hmm. how quickly did you advance through the ranks? So, you know, back then, Tyson, it was it was really vertical management. So you'd have an SGA, you might have two MGAs, and under that MGA, he may have a GA, maybe two. You know, it wasn't – there wasn't a lot of opportunity, and, and you really had to uh, separate yourself in order to have opportunity. But um, in this case, I had I moved up to MGA. My stepfather got the opportunity to become the SGA in Oklahoma, mm. and so I went with him. He went as the SGA, and I went as the MGA, and we wow. went to Oklahoma. And then um, after a couple years, uh, I wanted to kind of separate myself. And so I went into Arkansas as the SGA. That's where I was born. Was it? Yeah. Arkansas is a great I was born in little, little Rock. Yeah. 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 No, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed Little Rock. I was, uh, as, it's a very, very pretty state. Yeah. It was definitely, I tell the story of me moving from L.A. to Oklahoma. So in L.A., I'm working Watts, South Central, uh, Inglewood, that's my territory. That's, that's my hood. That's where I'm working. Okay. And I'm driving. This is the 70s, right? So I have a purple Cougar, orange wheels, orange padded back, orange roof. And I have an Afro, right? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> you know, it's the 70s. Yes. So, uh, so we end up taking that position in Oklahoma, right? So I drive my car cross country, and um, I stop at a bar. First thing, I got in Oklahoma City, stopped at a bar, came out a couple hours later. My car is gone, gone. The car is two blocks away and has been burned to the ground, <laughs> literally burned to the ground. And it was that, at that moment I said, all right, Roger, listen, you are definitely going to have to transition here. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to become a chameleon. And, uh, yeah, that was, that's what I did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So crazy. now you became the SGA in Arkansas? So I became the SGA in Arkansas. How old are you then? Um, let's see. So by then I was, um, I want to say 28. Maybe oh. I was 28 years old. 
And you were the youngest SGA at that time. At that time, but that did not last long. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of guys coming up at that point. And so, and then, and then with your promotion, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Was mm-hmm. it obviously working your way, becoming agent of the year, being able to produce the product? But what about recruiting? What did you do for recruiting? So, um, same thing, ads in the paper and bring them to the office and you would do your recruiting, yeah. you know? Yeah, I had <laughs> It's an interesting. It's interesting how many times I I would take a step forward and then go backwards. So I'm in LA. I'm in the middle of an interview, and uh, we're in an office building. I want to say it's like I don't know, ten stories high, and we're on like the sixth or seventh floor. I'm in an interview. The secretary. I'm a supervising agent, <laughs> and it must have been. I want to say it was one of my first or second interviews I'd ever done. Secretary comes in. She goes, um, Roger, can I talk to you for a second? Said, I'm trying to do this interview. And she goes, well, could you just come out for a second? So I came out, and she said, um, the police are here, and they want to arrest you. And I said, well, shit, that's not going to happen here and now. <laughs> So, so I remember. Just, I remember walking back into that office, looking at that guy with a straight face, and say, "Listen, I have got to go right now, but I want to tell you once again, this is the greatest opportunity that you could ever have." And then I walked out, told the secretary, "Listen." Um, they can meet me uh, on the sidewalk downstairs. There was like a fire escape yeah. that you could go down. And I met them down, and they arrested me for like 40 parking tickets, oh, wow. which then I learned the lesson that, yes, you do have to pay your parking tickets. Yeah. But that was like my, that was my initiation into, yeah. <laughs> into recruiting, uh, and not a good one. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> Now, jumping back into your the beginning of your SGA career, how did Arkansas go, and then where did you go from there? So Arkansas was great. It was great. It was the first time a you know, this is, this is, it's interesting when you look at the numbers today, but it was the first time that a small state had written over a million dollars. Yeah. So I mean that's massive back then. Yes. How many years ago from now until then? Like back then in comparison to now. How many years ago was that? So, um, so that would have had to have been, uh, shit, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago. So if you round it up to 40 with inflation yeah. and if everything yeah. doubles every 20 years, you figure a mil then, two, it would have really been like doing four mil. Yeah. So like what we're doing right now is what you did yeah. your first first year as yeah. an SGA. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. So and it was you, were big. you a startup? Or did you take over? Uh, a, a, there was only one person. Okay, left when I but there over. wasn't like a de- like I I think with the database here I think we got like four or five thousand resources. I don't know. Oh no no no. You probably no no yeah. no. And 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 back then when you took over a state, you know, you started from scratch. So, yeah. you know, I did the public relations. I did the recruiting. You guys did it all. I did the tra- yeah, we did it all. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the places that I took over. Uh, there was a really strained relationship with, with labor. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that was the way it was in Arkansas. And I remember the president of the AFL-CIO saying to me, you know, Roger, you're like a bad penny. You turn up everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, man, that's, that's, and you're going to see me everywhere. That is my job yeah. to make sure that wherever, where, wherever you need me or don't need me, that, that we're going to be there and we're going to show you our support. Yeah. You know, in Chicago here, the AFL-CIO had boycotted American income. I went to my first AFL-CIO meeting with, uh, with Sue, Sue Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She's great. So, yeah, but at that time, it was, you know, I walked in and we were boycotted. Wow. And, and trying to build back up relationships and make sure those relationships stayed, stayed strong. And it's interesting that um, three years later, I was on the, uh, the front page of the Chicago Trib leading the Labor Day parade in my on my motorcycle in an Uncle Sam, you know, outfit yeah. and so on. So, yeah, relationships are so important, so very, very important. So where did you go after Arkansas? So, you know, what, one of the issues, and, and I deal with this in the book, was that I was a, you know, I stayed an addict for 20 years, mm -hmm. and I was a functioning addict. When you no longer have that going on, it's the same energy, but now you're putting it into positive. Mm -hmm. And once you move that energy into, into positive, uh, it's just, it's amazing the success that you can have as, you know, as I had. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so as you get into Chicago, how does the first few years in Chicago go? Um, it, it, was, it was rough. Like I said, it wasn't... Um, it was rough just because we didn't have the labor relations. And so, you know, leads were few and far between. And at that time, I know this is shocking. It's going to be shocking. At that time, we didn't work referrals. We didn't work POS. You know, we didn't work POS because we thought, oh, wait a second here. That's, you know, those are like the golden goose, the eggs. You don't, you don't want to touch those. And... Because we, you know, said we were a union company, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we're, you know, we can go talk to your neighbors or talk to, you know, anybody. It's not till I became CEO and we kind of changed that whole format of, no, wait a second here. We work with the labor movement. When I, when I came into being CEO or running the company, 85% of our business was the union business. 85%. That's insane. Right? And now, when I left, it was like 20% or something. I don't know if it's still I think still that's my around. affiliation report right now. Yeah, okay, still that number. So you could imagine how the company had just kind of been stuck mm -hmm. because the labor movement had been stuck. It's not like the labor movement was growing. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, back to Chicago, uh, we relied strictly, strictly on the union lead. And because the relationships with, with labor were not good, and it's going to take time to create those relationships and to get the trust back of where we needed to be, um, it, it was very, it was tough in the beginning. Who were some of the key people or key plays that you made to build, rebuild those labor relationships? Um, it w I, I read in my office, uh, uh, actually at the, in the Teamsters Hall. 
I remember hearing this. <laughs> I always ask. I always ask our PR reps. Can I, just I go forgot to you, that you know? when you asked me where yeah. my offices were. I forgot. Yeah. So we rented. I rented my office in the Teamsters Hall, and and the Teamster unions were actually the first ones to give me a break. Wow. And once they gave me a break, then is that how other. you met Rona? No, I hired Rona. You know, you hired yeah. So she was a GA for you, and then transitioned to PR. So yes. so both of them. Sue Gilbert yes. was one of the top agents in the company. Yeah, was uh, I think the top GA in the company. Yep. one of the top MGAs in the company before she transitioned to PR. Mm-hmm. And Rona, same thing. Yep, top you know agent, you know uh, um, GA, MGA before she transitioned yeah. over to PR. And, you know, for me, I love that. And you should love that. Yes. Because when you have your PR people who also understand what it's like to be in the field, yes, you know, that's, that makes a big, big, big difference. Yeah. And both of them, really. So the, they were, you know, in the beginning of my operation, they, they were key, key players yes. in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so how long were you in Chicago then as an SGA? So I was in Chicago for 10 years. Okay. And uh, it ended up that I was in a motorcycle accident and um, had broken my arm in nine places, severed the radial nerve, broken collarbone, you know, a lot of broken pieces. It, didn't Giglione have a bag? And, and Eric did too. Yeah. Right at, yep, he did um, yeah, maybe about a year later, two years later or something. Wow. Yeah, I still have that picture of him and me uh, in Maui riding motorcycles yeah. at the top. So anyway, um, and and after that accident, I just felt like you know what? It's it's time. I want to grab my family, move to the beach, um, and and find some place on the beach that I can you know kind of do a semi retirement. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up leaving Chicago and moved to South Carolina. Okay. And that's, uh, so that's why I left Chicago, actually. And then what'd you do in South Carolina? So South Carolina, once again, I was an SGA, and I was an SGA there for two years. And I had two or three off. But remember, you know, I was used to walking into a meeting and sitting in front of 60 agents. Yeah. You know, then I was walking into a meeting and sitting in front of five agents. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I I really thought that's what I wanted. I really thought this is okay. This is great. Going to be a house on the beach, semi-retired, you know, do a little business. And that was it. And after two years, I called Mr. Rappaport and I said, listen, um, this doesn't work. It's not for me. I know you've been talking about and thinking about opening New York for years. And I said, I'd like to open up New York. Yeah. And so he said, uh, you know what? Why don't you fly in and, and come talk to me? And it just so happens right at that time, um, Mr. Rappaport was uh, was retiring. He he. By the time I had landed, he had already left American Income. Wow. And the president of American Income, Chuck Cooper, had said, well, I know you're coming to talk about running New York, but would you like to run the company with me? Wow. 
Yeah, wow. And um, and and that changed literally in a matter of weeks, where he ended up um, kind of overstepping his his boundaries. You know, g- giving some ultimatums. And CB didn't like that. And who, who is CB? CB was the CEO of Torchmark, which is now okay. Globe. Yes. Um, and he didn't like that ultimatum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the next thing I knew, I was interviewing with CB Hudson and Mark McAndrew okay. to come in and help run the company. And um, and and then I was in, and you know, um, Mark, who was really it's one of the the best mentors you could have in your life. He was, he was so great, so intelligent, so creative. Um, what, was he uh, like a COO of Globe? So, uh, Mark McAndrew at that time was the CEO of Globe, the company. Okay. Okay, which was the direct marketing arm of Torchmark. Okay. Um, and I think he th- he was also the CEO of United American Insurance at that time. Okay. So he was the CEO of two of the insurance companies. And now um, uh, CB had made him the CEO of American Income Life. Mm. And so, you know, and, and Mark was extremely hands-off extremely hands-off, which was a blessing for me because I don't think I would have worked very well in the corporate world. You know, yeah. as a CEO, you know, uh, you know, Fortune 500 company, and you would think that I'd fit in, but I, I did not fit in. And I think Mark understood that I didn't fit in and just gave me the room to do what I needed to do with the advice uh, that I needed to be able to do the things that I that that we thought that we could do, and you know it was a great it was a great partnership. Eventually, he became CEO of Torchmark. Okay, you know, and then retired. And and what was the relationship with uh, Mr. Rappaport in this transition? Uh, so. <laughs> Mr. Rapport was pissed. And at that point, my loyalty, as as always, was to American income. Yeah. You know, even though Bernard had been my mentor and had given me my shot and all that stuff. Yeah. My loyalty was still with American income. And so I said, hey, listen, you know, we we have got to distance ourselves. And, and then he just became the biggest cheerleader you could ever have. Yeah, I mean it was our, our relationship for for those years until he died was 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 just great. Yeah, it was just great. That's good. But during those two years, it was tumultuous. It was, um, yeah, it was not good. Now, what year did he <laughs> sell to Torchmark? So he sold to Torchmark. I want to say 96. in in eighty. I'm sorry, in ninety. Four, I thought Torchmark bought, okay. but it could have been '96. I will tell you that for the three years between '96 and '99, when I came in, 
uh, we we talked about it as the dark ages because mm. it was a time where where there was a jockeying for power between Mr. Rappaport, between Chuck Cooper, the president, and Bill Garner, who was the vice president. And each were going in different paths. It's interesting because when Torchmark bought American Income, it had been growing up until that point. Mm. As soon as they bought it, it stopped growing. Mm. And it was like, you know, it's like you buy a toy off the shelf and then it stops working. Yeah. That's how you shake it. I mean, that's what was happening with Torchmark. They bought this company. It was profitable. It was growing. And then it stopped growing. And and in that time, it's like all this jockeying for power. And it was, you know, it's a, it's a great, it's a great lesson in leadership, Tristan, you know, which is, if if you want to dismantle a company, if you want to if you want to stymie growth, uh, have your leadership going in different directions. You know, it's so important for there to be a leader, and and for that leader to be visionary, and 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 everybody following that person. Yeah. You know, when it starts splintering off, it, it's. Um, yeah, it's it's not a good time. So when he sold, is that when he left? So so when he sold, he stayed on as the CEO for I think it was like a couple years after. So okay. I want to say that that he stayed on for for two or three years after. But um, but what happened? CB was on a analyst call, mm. and and on that analyst call. He said, they asked, they said, listen, American income has stopped growing. What's going on? And he says, well, you know, if it doesn't straighten out, we're going to have to change, make some changes in management. That was the statement that, that threw everything off. And then what year did you officially become CEO? So I came in as the vice president and Mark was president and CEO. That was in 99. Okay. Then in 2000, maybe 2002, I became president. And then maybe 2004, uh, president and CEO. And then how you were CEO till 2017 or 16? To 2017. That was awesome. That's the year I was hired. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. 2017. So yeah, we had a great run. We had a good run. So talk about the run from 04 to 17. You know, we grew double digit uh, year after year after year. Uh, that's not to say that there was growth every year, but but when you average it out, we were probably 11, 12 percent a year growth wow. uh, over that 10 or 12 years. Um, made major changes that changed the company. You know, literally just changed the face of the company. It's 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 one of the reasons why you're in the position that you could be. There, there's two major changes that happened that really changed the ability for American income to grow. You know, one is that we formed a laptop presentation. I wanted to get everybody on the same track. We wanted to introduce the e-app and, you know, if you think about it, how hard would it have been able to to move into the virtual selling if we hadn't had that all set up, right? Oh, it would have been, been it would have been impossible. So, um, 
that was a that was a big thing. The second thing, and what I believe was the bigger one, was that was the PR centralization. So up until that time, you had an SGA. He controlled the territory. He had his PR people, or she did, and they controlled the leads in that territory. And so if you, let's say you were the SGA, and you became complacent, then I was forced, before that, I was forced to either replace you, right? Yep. And and or just let you stay in that comfort zone and stop growing in that territory. If I replaced you, then I had the gamble of, well, is the next person that I'm putting bringing in, are they going to be better than the person that I'm yeah. replacing? And sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. But as long as the SGA controlled the leads in that territory, then the company was stuck with whatever that SGA decided they were going to do. Yeah. Or, like I said, I had to replace them. Once I took over, once the t- company took over uh, taking care of the leads for the territories, then if you got complacent, I didn't have to terminate you, right? Mm. I could act. You could stay at that level, but I could put another two or three SGAs because now I was controlling the leads that were going out to the territory. And once that happened, um, growth exponentially grew. I mean, it was, it was. I don't know at what point. I can't say specifically, but I want to say, let's say that we were at sixty or seventy thousand, mm. uh, seventy million a year. And I want to say in the ensuing couple years, we were up at 120, 130 million. I mean, it was... How was it, it crossing was, that 100 million mark? Okay. So that's also a great story because I had put the goal up as 100 million. That was what we were going to reach. Hit 98 million. Next year, I hit 97. I'm going backwards. Um the third year, I said, well, this isn't working. And I changed the goal to $250 million, And we blew past $100 million, Blew past it. And it's, it's another lesson that said, hey, when you start getting close to your goal, you better change your goal. Yeah. Right? Change Absolutely. your number. Don't wait till you reach it to try to change it. Yeah. And uh, that was just the perfect example of how you could go past that's awesome. Yeah. So as, as you kind of wrap up your career uh, with American Income Life and coming close to 2017, what, what inspired you to start to transition into more of your re- – I still consider this like semi-retirement. You're all over the place <laughs> traveling. You're doing book tours. I feel like you're working. You look better than me. So. No, I doubt that. <laughs> so what, what inspired you to start to transition to back to the beach? Um. Well, you know, as, as I said before, I grew up on the beach. So, yep. so I love the beach, wanted to be close to the ocean. Um, and, and it was time for me to retire. You know, I, um, I, never, I never did that well in a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. And um, after Mark retired, you know, it, it, it became, in my mind, you know, um, pretty corporate. Yeah. 
And that's not good or bad. It's, it's you know, American has, income has definitely done well, you know, since I left. So it's not like, yeah. you know, it's, it's not good or bad. It's just different. And it wasn't something that, you know, I, I guess I had complete control and I didn't want to work in a situation where I didn't have complete control. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm not saying good, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's just the way I was. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what? It's, it's, it's time for me to retire. The other thing is that it, it gets to a point where you go, you know what? I really want to hit this $250 million. But I'm not that guy that's going to take it to a half a billion or a billion dollars. I knew that. Yeah. I knew that. You know, it's like the older you get, you go, okay, listen, here, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel my limitations. And what we needed were people younger, you know, that can that can move in this environment and grow the company. And I was super, super fortunate to have Steve Greer and David Zolfin, you know, to move into those, yeah. move into those roles. Um, and, and so I thought, okay, what, what's, what's next? And I got to tell you something very quickly. That was not an easy transition. You know, who Roger Smith was, was the CEO of American In Income, the CEO of Liberty National. That's who I was as a person. And when I retired, it was like, oh, shit, who am I? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who, who am I? What, what do I do now? Um, I thought about writing the book, uh, The Most Unlikely Leader, for quite some time. So obviously that was the next course of action. And... Um, and so that's kind of been on my plate. You know, what comes next? I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. It's, um, it, it, it is a chapter that uh, is unknown to me right now. So as you reflect back on your career, and this is probably a tougher question, but can you think off the top of your head maybe two or three of your best players or best students that you had the, the privilege of developing and spending time with? Yeah, um, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, that's <laughs> I was like, I might be able to get this out of it. <laughs> but maybe I'm not. not I, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I will say to you that uh, there are definitely have been uh, people that, um, SGAs, that have just been amazing in their growth. So, you know, one of them is your partner, is Simon. Yes. But, but with Simon, it, it's far different from just he's been able to grow his organization, organization big. With Simon, it is like he is the epitome of, of leadership. Mm. And when I say that, I say that, I say that because of where his heart is. You know, if if you can stay humble as a leader, if you can have humility as a leader, if you can remember where you came from as a leader, then you also understand about 
your responsibility to put back into the community, you know, to, to, to pay it back. Yeah. And, and what Simon has done with the organizations that he's founded with him, with his charitable being and putting back into the community and everything, it talks so much about who he is as a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing to want to see people to succeed, want people to succeed so that it looks good on you. It's another thing for you to want people to succeed because you genuinely care about their success. Yeah. And Simon genuinely cares about the people he's leading, about their success. Yes. And when you combine it with all these other attributes, you go, geez, he is the perfect one. You know, I could have a hundred of those, man. You know, we'd be doing 20 billion. You know, it's just, it's crazy. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What about, what's your most, what's your proudest moment over your entire career? Um, I don't know if I have a, a proudest moment, Tristan. I don't, I don't have one standout thing that goes, wow, that's, that was the moment. I think that I have been blessed beyond what I ever thought was possible. And I think that the successes that I have uh, have been gifts and I think that I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by people who, who wanted to be led, even when they didn't want to be led <laughs> by me. <laughs> but um, I was able to, to do all the things that I ever wanted to do and, and have the successes that I have. So to me, it's not a moment. It's like you know, an aggregate amount of events that have happened to uh, to formulate my life. I mean, I just, from where I was to where I am, you know, I just, I look back and I go, man, that's just, that's just a miracle. And mm-hmm. I don't know why, and I don't know why I deserved it, uh, but it was a blessing. Love that. I appreciate that. Now, if I were to blow that question out for your entire life, is there a moment in your life where you're like, that's my proudest moment in my entire life? Or would it kind of revert back to the blessing of, of America come life? Well, it, it would be. I mean, listen, you know, your, your, your kids are always, yeah. you know, always uh, so important in your life. And, and um, you know, I, in the book, I, I, you know, talked about each of the kids and, and kind of seeing the moments where they really blossomed, mm-hmm. you know, into into adults and, and who they are as human beings. And so, you know, if I, if I look back and go, where are, the, you know, the great moments in my life? It's like those moments where where I saw my kids really start to blossom and, and become, you know, the individuals that they are mm-hmm. and that I love. Love it. Yeah. So as we wrap up, what are, what are two or three things, especially for the listeners that, that are tuning in and, and more so in regard to our industry, getting into the insurance business and, and transitioning into leadership, 
for them to, if you had to start over and, and you had to get to a million dollars in 12 months, what would be two or three things to, for, for an individual to do that? So, so here's the, the, the first thing. Uh, you, you've got to examine yourself and you've got to examine your thinking. You know, I talk about this. I'll talk a little bit tomorrow about your belief systems. But, uh, but I will tell you that the most important thing that you can do is just come to the understanding that however big your thinking isn't big enough, I mean, that you, you have to get to, to that, to understanding that and recognizing that. So, so if I was starting off, uh, the first thing that, that I would come to the realization is that um, I can't do it by myself. And I think that for people transitioning uh, into leadership, I think that's a big issue. You know, they're trying to do it, try to do it by themselves and, and trying to build it by themselves. And they, 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 they hold it too tight. And the reality of it, at some point, there's a light bulb that should come on and it should be out of fr- frustration where you, where you go, man, I just can't do this all by myself. And the answer is, yes, finally, you got it. You can't do it all by yourself. And so... Once you understand that, then then what you're looking for is not salespeople, but people that you can lead and, and people that you can coach and teach how to lead other people. And if you can do that, then you're growing wide. You know, if I go into, if I'm a supervising agent or a, or a general agent, and all I think about is I just want to hire agents and, and, and teach them how to sell, then I'm, I'm stuck in that position. But if I go in and say, listen, I'm going to hire agents, teach them how to sell, and then I'm going to teach them to lead, and they're going to help me grow bigger, and we're all going to grow bigger, then you can reach whatever, maybe a million. You know, you said a million. Shit, maybe it's two million. Maybe it's five million. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody starts off and goes, well, I want 10 agents. Well, why? <laughs> why? When you have virtual selling, when you have virtual training, when you have virtual, rec- why would you only want 10? Why wouldn't you want 30? Why wouldn't you want 50? Why wouldn't you want 100? Yeah. What, what's stopping you? And the only thing is that's stopping you is you surrounding yourself with people who are, who are coachable, who want to learn, who want what you have, who want success. That's all you want. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's a person that you can teach, and that's a person that you can surround yourself with. And that's what you have to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I asked two or three questions that, that are maybe a little more biased to myself. And um, the, the first one is I, I always like to know, the only, only other thing I like outside of, outside of working is, is movies. Do you have a favorite movie? I do have a favorite movie. What is your favorite movie? It's The movie? Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven? Is it, the original. That's Magnific- the original one. The okay. original Magnificent Seven with Steve McQueen. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, yeah. And my, the second one is The Great Escape. Okay. Those are, those are my, uh, my two favorite. I, I, uh, one of the mantras, you know, I created a mantra every year. Yes. And so Did one that of, start with you? Yeah. 
Awesome. And, <laughs> and so one of the mantras was, let's ride. And I took it out of a scene uh, in The Magnificent Seven where the banditos had captured the village and they escorted them, the Magnif- Magnificent Seven, out of town and they had collected their guns and they threw their guns on the ground and said, now leave. And, uh, um, and uh, I can't remember, it was James Colburn, somebody picked up his guns and says, you know, nobody tells me to pick up my guns and run. And... Um, and so in my mind, as they headed back into town, it was Yul Brenner going, let's ride. Yeah. And I always thought, you know, okay, man, we are going to conquer the insurance industry. Let's ride. Love that. In the end, as I watched the movie over and over, I, I realized he never said let's ride. That's just something <laughs> that was a figment of my imagination <laughs> that I had since I was a kid and uh, used it in that. I know we, uh, we do a lot of dinners in American Income Life, but do you have a favorite restaurant that you've come across in your lifetime? I do have a favorite restaurant. So um, my favorite restaurant is Uchi Sushi. Okay. And it's actually started in Texas, and now they have one in Miami. Wow. And and what they do is they give their chefs the ability to be creative. And so Mm. there's... They, they might have a fish with some citrus or something. You know, it's just, it, it's creative flair yes. with sushi, you know. And then Nobu comes in like seconds. So yeah. I'm, I'm a huge sushi, huge sushi fan. That's that growing yeah. up in Cali. Yeah. <laughs> You're now, right. now, some people are big into books, big mentors, different things like that. Was there a book or a person that really helped shape your life and make you into the man you are today? Uh, yeah. I mean, so listen, I had three mentors and, and, you know, obviously Bernard, my stepfather, Mark McAndrew. Uh, As far as books are concerned, uh, Zig Ziglar was, you know, he he was so important in my life. If, If you think about that, you know, in sales, you're getting a lot more negatives than positives, right? Let's yeah. say I get, for every one positive, I may get two or three negatives. So so you get a lot more negative. And I loved Zig's positive mental attitude. I loved listening to him on, yeah, and, you know, whatever, CD tapes and whatever yeah. it was way back. But I remember, you know, just listening to him, getting that positive stuff going in my head. And I, years later... Years later, I had, it was such a privilege that I had him as a guest, a speaker at one of our conventions. Wow! And it was like, man, this is this is so cool. I think John Maxwell, yes, is absolutely the best. Um, you know, the twenty-one irrefutable laws of leadership, right? Yes. So when I read that book, it it was one of those moments that changed my life. Yes. I read it and said, you know what? I have literally broken every law. Every one. <laughs> every single every law. One of them. Right? Uh, and it just, it's one of those books that just changes your life if you want to be a leader. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else on your mind before we wrap up? No, I think that you have gotten a lot from my mind. A lot. <laughs> stuff you should have and stuff you shouldn't have. So. <laughs> well, I'm very grateful for your time. I'm, I'm grateful I get to spend two days with you and you pour back into uh, your Good. old stomping grounds. So again, guys, the most unlikely leader. So you can get this pretty much anywhere. Yeah, ready to go. Let's go. (laughs) 